Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to our February 2018 Leadership Podcast. Five voices for you this time, starting with a primary head in a challenging environment on the outskirts of Leeds where creativity, human interaction underpins the extraordinary success that they've been able to have there. It's a, it's a great story. Then an independent school head talking about the distinctive features of girls' brains and the implications for classroom teaching there. Then from the TESFE Awards, a young man stepped on stage to give his thanks for what Further Education and the Prince's Trust in particular had done to save him from gang culture, uh, and I managed to catch up with him uh, during the evening. Then we've got an education professor to talk about our responsibility as school and college leaders to address the morale-sapping pressures of teacher workload. And finally, an interview with a head in his first year at a school in special measures where his belief is that it's only through a really, really clear, strong curriculum underpinned by a very clear behaviour policy that you're really going to be able to help children to step out of their circumstances and actually put social mobility into action. So, hope you enjoy it. I'm Chris Dyson, head teacher of the greatest school in the world at Parklands Primary School in Seacroft in Leeds. <laughs> now, I know Seacroft in Leeds because I started my career just, just, just down the whatever it is, A63 or wherever it is. Uh, Seacroft is not the easiest area, but tell us a bit about the area and tell us about the school. Well, we're the most deprived primary school in Leeds with 82% pupil premium. Uh, really tough estate, one of Europe's largest council estates. Um, but we don't use that as a barrier to excuses because through using a carrot approach as opposed to a stick, we've actually managed to uh, become the single highest performing school in the country at maths. And when you're given the demographics at the area, these kids are the best in the country. And it's done through well-being, it's come through non-testing, it's come through being creative, uh, through arts, through music, through experiencing the ballet, to being creative through thinking out of the box, taking them all to uh, the seaside, to experience splashing in the sea and building things out of sand, uh, and to doing things like opening school upon Christmas Eve to give these kids a valued Christmas like we all have at home ourselves. So if, if and when uh, I come and visit the, the school, what am I going to see that's distinctive? What will strike me as soon as I come in there? You'll just be met with smiles, loves and hugs from, from teachers, from teaching assistants, from office staff to kitchen staff to children. Uh, you know, the best thing about our recent Ofsted inspection report in October, uh, where unbelievably uh, we got an outstanding, uh, and we're a local authority school as well, which makes it even better, um, is on one of the pages in the report it said there was uh, four inspectors for two days, before school, after school, dinner time, break time, hiding around corridors. They couldn't find one example of low-level disruption. All they saw for two full days were smiley, happy, confident children who wanted to make the most of their education or were excelling in absolutely everything that they did. And when you think driving into Seacroft Estate, you're driving past burnt-out cars, more, more shopping trolleys than it's a Tesco car park, that, for me, was the most touching, brilliant thing that, that could have been in that report. Uh, one of the things uh, that we're doing today at this, uh, this conference is talking about um, celebrating creativity. The trouble, in, in my mind, is that sometimes people kind of think it's either creativity or it's the other stuff. I mean, clearly, if you're doing that well, the creativity is then feeding into academic success. So, can you talk us through that? So, by experiencing things, the children can write about them, you know. And the, thing, the problem with areas like Seacroft is... 
um, because of the lack of money and such. Children go, don't get the same experiences as, say, my children do. So it's essential for a school we give them those opportunities. And as I said, when you've got these really tough kids that are uh, actively taking part in all the Northern Ballet uh, interviews, you know, for their new staff, you know, it gives them a new, it gives a new avenue for them to, to go down to experience. We managed to get funding that all the children in year four, year five and year six get a totally free residential holiday. So when you're stood 30 foot up in the air, uh, being held by a little tiny wire and your legs are shaking and your heart's beating like a drum and your legs are like jelly, then you can bring that into your writing uh, and express what fear feels like and things. So it's given them all those experiences that, that every child, irrespective of where they come from, every child should experience. Charlotte Avery, headmistress of St Mary's School, Cambridge. Let's talk about your school first of all. How long have you been there? What kind of school is it? What are you proud of? My school is St Mary's in Cambridge and I've been at the school for 11 years now as head. It's an unusual school because it is an all-through school from the age of 4 to 18. So it's a primary school and a secondary school. And it also has the advantage of being part boarding as well as a day school. So I have 85 international boarders and then the rest of the school is day students. We now have boarding from the age of uh, 11 or in fact a little bit younger, year 10, age 10, uh, all the way through to 18. So does that mean a teacher who might have seen themselves as a secondary teacher actually is also teaching primary children and if that is the case in, in your view, does that make you a better teacher because you've got that broader perspective? Well, I think it certainly adds to teacher uh, development and we like to think that um, we are recruiting and retaining the very best uh, teachers we can. So it does give a certain flexibility. In fact, we have several teachers who, in fact, have qualifications both in primary and secondary. So one of our physics teachers also has a primary degree. So she teaches science stroke engineering to our junior school which is absolutely perfect. Um, in contradistinction we have one of our junior school members of staff who uh, is also secondary trained and so she can teach languages across both schools which is a real advantage but it is a question of upskilling teachers and allowing them to be able to have the flexibility and the variety of teaching experience. Understood. Now last year you were the president of the Girls School Association so tell us a little bit about the Girls School Association but also tell us about your presidential year. The Girls School Association represents the 150 or so independent girls schools in the UK. That said, they are very, very keen indeed to be working with their counterparts in the state-maintained or the academy sector. So one of the key opportunities I had was to promote certain aspects of teaching and learning across both sectors. So my concentration was on STEM, in particular physics and engineering. So one of the key points of my year was to be able to focus on work being done by the Institute of Physics alongside a charity called Physics Partners, which is looking to upskill teachers particularly for A-level teaching and particularly for the focus of teaching girls so that the girls are empowered to do the subject at school at the highest level, think about going on to university and then in careers in physics. So what we've been able to do is to set up some hubs whereby teachers from the state-maintained or academy sector and the independent sector are working together in small geographical hubs to upskill and think particularly about what is dynamic teaching and good classroom practice for the teaching of girls at A-level. So one of the most uh, important things about 
um, my year as president was to take key issues in education and be able to promote them broadly across the sector. We were able to introduce Professor Bruce Hood, who's in neuroscience from Bristol University, who's working widely across the state as well as independent sector, um, with working about what girl, works in girls' brains and how best we can adapt neuroscience cutting-edge technology to the teaching, in this case, of, of science. And he had a great session on neuroscience, neuromyths and neurononsense. Mm. Why is there a sense that girls' brains are working differently from boys' brains, then? I think what he's saying is we've got to think about how we can motivate um, these young people, particularly through things like collab collaboration as well as competition, but also thinking about things like role models within schools and opportunities within the workplace so that girls will see women in engineering contexts and therefore see women like them to be able to aspire to that. So it's more about um, the opportunities around the teaching of the science, which I think there are still some gaps in, and careers education is particularly important in schools, for example, through the Gatsby um, model of education to try to see whether we can broaden and promote uh, role models for young women in areas like science and engineering. My name is Arbe Felipe. And just tell us what you've been doing tonight. Tonight I came with the aim to really just share what the Princess Trust does and how it helped me change and kickstart my life around. And I think it's fair to say you hadn't had a fantastic experience of education, had you, in your early life. So give, give us a flavour of that. As a younger, like, younger child, I was more of a rebel and I really didn't get along with like, being in the classroom. So I found it very difficult to like, focus. I stuck myself with the wrong crowd. Um, and it was pre-college, it was more secondary school. Um, I went to an all-boys school, so most of my friends were... Uh, it was a lot of gang culture. Uh, and the, the more, more of the focus was more to, you know, what are you doing right now out in the streets, not really what are you learning. Um, so my mindset was more on a completely you know, different aspect of not in education, more on like what's happening on the street. So it's what, what's the word on the street. The point for me that changed was when I... Through the Princess Trust, I did a work experience at TM Lewin, and it was more of learning on the job that helped me realise, you know, because I was already at a point where I was like, this is what I'm doing now, and then I have to give everything I have for this opportunity to, you know, really wake up. And it was more of being there every single day that I realised, you know, everything I learned today is going to help me tomorrow to be better. And the more I learned, the more I could get along with people. So I worked, I got the work placement at TM Lewin, which is a shirt company, and they sell suits. I learned how to, you know, properly iron a shirt, do a tie. Why do you wear, you know, dinner shirts instead of a normal shirt? And it was that learning process that allowed me to think about everything else in my life, that to get how it all fit in place and how I really hadn't really thought about my life in the right direction. Um, so during that time at work, it was every single day was more the focus was to learn, and anything that came across, it was just take it all in and use it. And f finally, my, my job is that I represent about 19,000 school and college leaders. What message are you sending back to us about what we need to do to help people like you in your earlier stage? I think one of the most important things, even for me when I was younger, is. Sometimes you don't really know what, what's out there and or you don't, like, you're not quite sure what your passion is and what you want to become. 
and for those that are unsure it's more of them to go out and it's not really research but maybe more go out and experience what's out there either like for most of my success right now has been shadowing other people in different jobs and learning what they do and then what really connects back with me so for t like people who are being able to, in a leadership position to go and talk to younger people is more to really understand what their needs are or what they think their needs are because sometimes you don't really know what you want to do or what you think is the right thing if i had the chance to go back um yes i think if I got to talk to myself, it was more, you know, have go have that sit down conversation. It's like, you know, this is your life. You really, you know, get a grip of yourself. If you have a sense of direction where you want to go, make sure you're driving in that way. Um, so yeah, just I think it's a hard conversation. You want to go somewhere, you need to go do it. Thank you, Peter. I'm Becky Allen. I'm a professor of education at the UCL Institute of Education. And we're here at the Head Teachers Roundtable uh, Summit, as it's grandly called. Uh, what have you been talking about this morning? Today I've been trying to help school leaders resolve the dilemma of why, on the one hand, teachers are actually very happy in their jobs, and yet, on the other hand, they um, feel their working hours are far too long, and because of that, they, they want to leave the profession. Um, I've been talking about the role of um, the audit culture and control approaches to leadership in all of that. I've talked about why these things have come about in the system and the complexity of the reasons why they've come about. And because of that complexity, I've talked about how difficult it is for the profession to fix it. But one of the nice things about coming here and seeing lots of head teachers is I can talk about kind of my um, ideas for a blueprint of how leaders that want to institute more autonomy, supportive leadership processes in their school can kind of think about going about it and going about it in a way where they feel confident that they can justify what they're doing to an inspector who walks in the door. Um, and that they can feel, to go about doing it and still feel confident that they can manage staff who need to get better at teaching or who need to leave the profession. Um, but I also get lots and lots of feedback and good ideas from the heads who are here who, who can talk about their specific contexts um, and, and explain you know, why, this, why this stuff is so tough for heads to do. Just give us a flavour, what kind of things are those uh, kind of bold heads doing um, in order to allow teachers to focus on the things they need to focus on? The first part of the job is to strip out the audit that takes place in schools because audit takes time for teachers and by audit I mean policies around marking, um, around how to plan lessons, about how to um, deposit data, how to assess pupils and to give that autonomy back to teachers themselves to make the choices about how they do those things as they once did. For example when I was a teacher these things were entirely my choices um, and to just free up time and to get workload down that way. And once you've got workload down to really try and refocus leadership back onto leadership of teacher development and developing a professional culture where um, teachers have the time and space to talk with leadership and with each other about how they're getting better at teaching. And I think that is one of the things that gets lost when you've got this overwhelming burden of the older culture and this sense that you are being controlled um, in the way that you, that, that you get to do your job as a teacher. 
And, and I guess in response to that, what a lot of school leaders would say is, well, that audit culture is driven by Ofsted and the accountability system and so on and so forth. And what would you say in response to that? I'd say yes. Um, yes, it was. And the audit culture is great for Ofsted because Ofsted, um, because they have relatively short inspections, they can't observe um, the quality of teaching and learning in schools. So all they can do is be auditors of the audit. So they need it. Um, I would also say to you as school leaders that you were the agents of that change and that it is within your gift to make choices about how you run your school and the only thing you need to think about and plan for is how are you going to do that and justify to Ofsted that running a school that promotes autonomy, supportive leadership is a good thing, is a valuable thing is a thing that, that, that promotes the kind of the intrinsic motivation in teachers that they have um, to want to do their job well and get better at teaching um, and, and to find ways to demonstrate that off, to Ofsted that this is a legitimate way to run our schools and it is the way we must run our schools if we want to have the kind of teachers in teaching um, who, who value that kind of autonomy and that drive to get better in what is ultimately a really complicated job that we can't specify how people should teach. I wish we could. It would make school improvement a lot easier than it is at the moment, but we can't. And, and because of that, that is why promoting autonomy of teachers is so important. And just finally, I remember the lecture which I came, kind of came across through the Guardian article, which was saying something akin to, in the old days, a teacher would plan that they would teach, they would mark. They still do that, they probably do that more, but they then have to justify that. And I remember texting you saying it's a really kind of feisty, provocative um, article and you responded by saying well only you can change that and by you you meant school leaders is, is that the case do you think I do think that's the case um, I think regardless of Ofsted's role in all of this and in promoting or upholding or valuing an audit culture it ultimately has come from somewhere and it's only really the head teachers that can make the choices around the practices in those schools that promote an audit culture or that promotes an autonomy, supportive leadership culture. Are you uh, in an optimistic frame of mind overall or not yet? So right now, I feel really, really scared for schools about the impending teacher shortages. We feel things are bad at the moment. I think if um, we fail to recruit onto teacher training programmes in the way that it looks like we're doing, I think we're hitting a complete crisis in 14, 15 months' time when we find we can't recruit for the next academic year. Um, and I don't know how we deal as a profession in a situation where it's not just that we can't hire the staff we would ideally like, that's where we are today, but we literally can't hire the qualified bodies in the room. And I don't know what we do about that. And I think anything else that could make me optimistic about where we are as a profession gets washed out by that. Um, because we just can't function as a schooling system if we don't have enough teachers. So I wish I could say I was more optimistic than I am. <laughs> Becky Allen, thank you. So I'm Ollie Knight. I'm executive head teacher at Phoenix Academy. Lots of things to talk about. Let's just start with your previous role. You're over at a, the first first of the new free schools, essentially, back yeah. in 2011 or whenever it opened. Uh, what was it you both did and you learnt working at Greenwich Free School? So I joined Greenwich Free School um, after it had been open for two years. So it, it just got RI. 
And I think because it only had year seven and year eight, we had the space to really not be sucked into that year 11 vortex and just think about curriculum and spending three years getting our kids really, really ready. We had the space, I suppose, to throw out the year seven and year eight curriculum, throw out the assessment system and redesign the whole model from like first principles. Yeah. And so it was a real opportunity. And curriculum has always been your thing. You've yeah. talked about it, you've written about it, yeah. we've corresponded about it. And yeah. so when people use a phrase like a broad and balanced curriculum, you're immediately a bit sceptical of that. Yeah. So just talk us about why curriculum is at the heart of what a good school should be doing and what that looks like. So I, I've always, yeah, I hate the phrase broad and balanced. I think the problem with it is that it it enables you to do a smattering of lots of things with the students not really ever developing a coherent framework for the subject or able to think in more powerful ways within the subject. Because if you're doing one lesson a week in 12 subjects, that to me is absolute nonsense. So for me, broad and balanced is teaching less subjects in much more depth. So so we would rather here teach eight or nine subjects for several hours each week and really think about the types of student we're creating through exposure to academic disciplines and academic thought. It's not so much for us, or it's not only about, you know, the best of what's been thought and said and these kind of things. It's, it's more, it's about academic subjects grew out of our ways of trying to make sense of the world around us. Maths is a way to try to understand the world. History is about trying to understand the world. Science is about trying to understand the world. And so, if we want our students to have a sense of agency and to be able to engage in the national debate, they need to have that knowledge and have that framework for thinking, which I think is why I think curriculum is more important than anything else that the school does. And what was interesting when you were talking earlier is that you, you don't conceptualise curriculum like it is sometimes conceptualised, which is about qualifications. And so you, you know, yeah. there are some schools where basically year seven is the beginning of a long launch pad leading to GCSE, yeah. science and so on and so forth. You don't see it like that. So kind of show us the link between what children will be tested on at the end through public examinations and what they will have experienced from year seven. Yeah, so we kind of always think that the, the GCSEs and A-levels are incidental experiences in their education. And so for us, we, we started by saying, well, what does an expert look like? How do they think? How do they talk? How do they solve problems? How do they, what do they do when they're stuck? And then we, and we tried to use those ideas to frame the curriculum planning and, and um, the kind of foundational rules for the subject. And we, we had the view that we'll teach the kids... The, the subject and so when the exam comes along the exam is actually much easier than what they've been doing in year nine so we we really felt at gfs um our year nine kids were doing were thinking in much more powerful ways than the gcc exam ever required them to think and so when the exam came along you, we, you'd have to do a little bit of teaching to the test you can't get away from it because the, the test is the test but we could do that for six months not six years and so we, we really just feel like if you if you teach the kids the what Christine Council calls, I'm going to get this phrase wrong now because I never really understood it, the indirect manifestation of knowledge. You teach them these things that aren't on the exam spec, but that give the exam spec meaning. So, you know, the French Revolution we've just seen in year eight is not, probably is not on the GCSE exam spec, nor is the Industrial Revolution. But by understanding these big kind of swirling events that happened in the past, the kids will be better able to understand Elizabethan England or understand the rise of the Nazis because they can place it in a much deeper, richer context. Now, you cut your teeth 
partly at ARC, partly at Greenwich Free School, but we're, we're sitting here in your office looking out at the uh, White City Estate, which is a fairly, fairly tough place, it has to be said. Yeah. So what, what led you to think, I'm going to go to that school which hasn't got rich knowledge curriculum, has got all kinds of social problems? What brought you here and what were the things you immediately thought you, you had to do? Um, I don't know why I came. <laughs> I, 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 some people have probably got really pithy answers. I... I don't know what I honestly don't know. I, I live in Hammersmith. I lived in Hammersmith for 10 years. My wife is a CAM psychiatrist. My kids go to a local Hammersmith school. So I'm quite invested in the area. And I, I, I don't know why I took the job. I just really felt like it's, an, it's such an important school. There should be such an important school. And it's really let the whole state down. And so the obvious things we had to solve straight away were safety, uh, site security, those crazy things that people don't really have to think you have to worry about. So we had to spend, I think, 70 grand on fencing. And so it's it's a bit like a supermax American prison now, but it, it's safe, you know, and I know where the kids are and, they, and they're never out of sight. And so we instantly had, to, had to, to solve things around basic security. We carried out a full safeguarding audit before I took, took on the post, which uncovered a whole myriad of different problems that needed to be addressed around not knowing where the kids are, not knowing who's on site. The kids used to be able to kick open the fire doors, slide down the fire escapes, get over the fence and go and smoke their drugs and then, and then come back in the same way. I had to lock all of this stuff down. Um, so we had a big issue. That we, had to, we, had to, we basically shut down two floors of one of the blocks because the kids were just drinking up there and smoking drugs and, and or cutting each other's hair in between lesson transition and these kind of crazy things. So we had to do a lot of stuff around site security we also had to do a total reboot of what is the school about? You know, I think the school had forgotten that actually the school is here for the kids and that these kids, just because they live in the White City Estate, you know, deserve the same opportunities as the kids who go to Latimer Upper School 10 minutes walk from here who was paying, you know, 30 grand a year to go there. So we had to do a total reboot of what, what are schools for and what is the fundamental purpose of state education so. It, is, it is striking both listening to you and walking around with you because, of course, you get the rhetoric and then you get the, yeah. the reality and so you're looking for the gap between the two. That what you say in, in, in I think, a non-patronising way, these children should have as a birthright the same entitlement that, yeah. that others do from different backgrounds. Therefore, we're going to make sure they are steeped in good manners, yeah. courtesy, good behaviour, knowledge, teachers who care for them but equally don't take any nonsense. Yeah. That's, I have to say, is what we've seen as we've walked around yeah. as well. That must have come at quite a personal cost. You, you, it, must, it must have been tough and you've had dark days through that, haven't you? I think I have a dark day every day, but I have, <laughs> but I have, a, I have a bright day every day as well. So I was saying it's kind of a bit like a riding on a knife edge, a school in special measures, because one thing can go wrong and the whole school falls apart and it's nerve-wracking and especially here you know we've had days where we've had to have seven police cars and the police dogs and riot vans and everything outside school because we've had rival gangs uh, converging in, in the local parks and things so things do go wrong but we just want our kids when they come here and I don't think it's patronizing to learn to play the bourgeois game you know I want my kids who at this school to be, able to, to be able to go to university admissions interview and switch it on like a kid from eating can and then, you know, come back home and, and you know, be a totally different person. I think, I think we have to be able to... Uh, it's modal shifts or whatever it's called. I, 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 I never understand these terms probably, but it's, it's them kind of 
changing the way that they interact based on their context. Code switching, I think. Yeah. In linguistics, yeah. it's good. Um, one last thing, because the, 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 one of the kind of the topics we're talking about all the time is teacher workload. And yeah. you have really kind of explored teacher workload. Yeah. And the principle is you want teachers working on the things that are going to help them to teach better yeah. and children to learn more. So just tell us the kind of things that teachers here would be expected to do. Yes, this is an interesting one, and we, we, felt a bit, we felt a bit risky being in special measures, <laughs> stripping out marking, but we thought, well, we can't get any worse. So, yeah, so now we, I suppose teachers don't routinely write any kind of comment in books. They don't take all the books in and read them through. We just don't think that's a good use of their time. We do, um, again, all of this is stolen from other schools. None of it is ours. So we do a sample review where we bought each teacher a nice like moleskin journal and every day they t- they'll take in five books in an end of a lesson read through the work from those five books and say okay these are two things that the, that the class have kind of understood that i'm happy that that's pretty concrete but there are these one or two area misconceptions or gaps and then the next lesson is simply the do now which is always done in silence it just reteaches those gaps so instead of taking in books marking them and then giving them back two weeks later, when you know the closing the stable door after the horse is bolted, we get we try to have a much more real time approach to this kind of thing. So so the teachers don't mark books, the teachers don't write comments in books for the kids to respond to. You know I just don't think it's a good use of their time. Instead, they spend more time planning a good do now. They spend more time doing a weekly low, planning a weekly low stakes quiz, and they spend more time um, on curriculum design. So we we freed up all this time. We have an hour a week of staff training. But a lot of that is on curriculum. It's not necessarily on hints and tips to be a better teacher. We've got our eight habits that all teachers have to commit to and that all observations are connected to, but no training is outside of those eight things. So we don't, we don't look for anything other than the eight things that we think evidence would currently suggest, because it's tentative, tentative claims we're making, um, are the things that teachers should be spending their time doing. So we've tried to strip away everything that's... And what, what kind of things are, without doing all eight? What, what, yeah. Give us a flavour. Um, so we talk a lot about knowledge-led planning. So all of our lesson planning starts from the outcome. What is the takeaway? What is the, the fingertip and the, or the residual knowledge the kids are going to have at the end of the lesson? And then how are you going to make sure they get it? So a lot, of, a lot of planning starts from the beginning and kind of works its way through. We've just said, what's the, what's the thing at the end? Then plan the do now then plan the teacher exposition, then plan the, the whatever exit ticket afterwards or whatever it is. So we, we um, heavily invested in exit tickets. I know some people hate exit tickets. I really like them. I think it helps our teachers get a broad view of what the kids can and can't do and then plan their lessons based. So all of our focus is on lesson planning based on what the kids' feedback suggests they need more work on. Fine, definitely finally you so you find yourself in a school that you hadn't thought that you were going to uh, yeah. apply for which is yeah. and which is a tough call but there's a real sense from where I am that you believe that this community deserves to have a good school at the heart of it yeah. uh, and you have to exemplify community leadership by being out standing in front of the shops making sure fights aren't breaking out yeah. and all the stuff which is unglamorous yeah. but important yeah. in a context like this and unsafe and unsafe yeah what what do you think is your time scale for for for, for making this school securely good um Securely good five years. Yeah. I mean, it takes a long time. There's a lot of rot in this school. It's been, you know, festering away for about 50 years, probably. 
um, you know, I was, I was with some parents of the day who came to this school and they were saying, and this is just a group of parents from year five parents, kids in year five at a local primary school, and they were saying, oh yeah, we stabbed that teacher in the back. Oh yeah, I got stabbed when I was at the school. Oh yeah, two of my mates set the, set the East Ring on fire and burnt it down. So the school, the parents that send their kids here also came here and did not have a fun time. And so turning that around is our biggest problem. I think we can, we can lift outcomes. We're not gaming the system. We're not interested in quick fixes because you know, having three business degree qualifications or whatever doesn't help my kids get a job as far as I'm concerned. But um, to, it, it, the big thing for us is the community believing that this is a school their children are going to come to and thrive and be safe and be happy and be well looked after and get good qualifications. It'll take us five years, I think, to really convince them that this is a safe, happy school that you, you know, I wouldn't send my kids here at the moment. And I've been really clear to the parents about that. But I wouldn't send my kids to GFS three years ago. Hmm. So. Oh, it's been a pleasure to visit. Thank you. No, thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.